Welcome to Everybody Has Shit. I'm Kim Reed. This podcast is an open invitation to put your wellness on another level. You no longer have to keep your autoimmune disease or whatever it is that's holding you back a secret. Secrets hurt us. Everybody has shit, so let's all get better together. Let's all try to overcome the challenges we are facing and live our best life. The three H's, hope, health, happiness. These are pretty fundamental aspects of life. The discovery of new types of treatments for cancer directly affect the three H's. And there's one man behind this, and we get to talk to him, John Hood. He is a cancer researcher. He is responsible for saving the lives of so many. And with his new treatments, that number will continue to grow. This conversation is really an eye-opener. There's insight and explanation that is fascinating. We know you'll learn so much and be able to help others as a result. Let's get to it. John Hood, it is so awesome to have you here. So I just want to give you a little background about how this began and why we're doing it. I, I don't know, it's been about six years ago, was getting sick and didn't know what was going on. I thought it was menopause, horrible symptoms, hair falling out. I clamped down and didn't know what doctors to go to. So I kind of suffered and didn't tell anybody. John and I worked together in radio. He had no idea what was going on. And I just kind of didn't tell anybody. So what happens when you suffer in silence is things get worse much worse until they're unbearable. When we first started this podcast, the reason why we did it was because it doesn't benefit anybody to be quiet about your symptoms. We have to have a platform where it's okay to trust. It's okay to talk to people because your gut instinct is going to tell you it's safe to talk to somebody because you never know what you're going to get back. You never know what kind of information they might have for you that could benefit you. So it's a platform and it's not just about autoimmune, it's about people with cancer, it's about people that are having to deal with chronic illness and to somehow figure out the best life they can have and the best quality of life they can have. And then you come along. So we have really good mutual friends. And it was, I don't know, it was a couple of months ago when we were at a dinner together. You're a scientist. But to hear you speak with the enthusiasm that you have about cancer and the way and cancer and the discoveries around cancer, there's so many ways that you can think about cancer. Do you think about it as a death sentence? Do you think about it as a chronic illness? Do you think about it as, well, maybe they're going to find a cure? There's so many ways. But for me, the thing that you triggered was hope. Hope. And then I do a little background search on him and I see the actual difference that you're making. It's honestly incredible. Okay, so I'm done talking. <laughs> so please just from how did all this all begin with you? Um yeah, so I started out as a scientist just like you said. I did my postdoctoral research here at Scripps Research Institute in San Diego. It was great coming to San Diego. I think I told you before it was com- being born in Growing up in Texas, just realizing that you can live somewhere without mosquitoes was eye-opening. Yeah. It's, it's a whole different world. This like, is the place. This is it. This is it. It's like, all right, I'm here. I want to live here. And, But ultimately, what I wanted to do was I didn't want to be playing with mice. I wanted to actually get something that made a difference in lives. My mom had died of lung cancer. I had a brother that died of lung cancer. So I was very committed to the notion of trying to treat people. And the only animal that really matters at the end is humans. Right. Us. And so I did the postdoc from 98 to 2001 and started the participating in the starting of my first company in 2001. It was a company called Targetion, and I've been starting companies in San Diego ever since, biotech companies. And I've had the great experience of actually discovering drugs that got approved in the U.S. and Europe and meeting patients that are alive because they work, which is the apex of my life. Okay, can you say the first drug yeah, sure. that got approved and what that drug is and what the benefits are? Absolutely. It was a drug that I invented in that first company. It was called Fedradnib. It was an inhibitor of a kinase, which we can talk about. But it's ultimately causative for a subset of a blood cancer called myelofibrosis. And that 
cancer leads to total bone marrow failure. So you don't produce enough red blood cells. You don't have platelets. You don't have white blood cells. Your bone marrow completely fails. And it's caused by mutation in this one protein. And we developed an inhibitor of it and sold the company off to a larger pharmaceutical company, Sanofi, based out of Paris, after uh, I had designed the phase one, met all the investigators, and started the trial. They completed the studies, but at the tail end, they had a few adverse events and a really small number of patients. And I think they were also conflicted because business-wise, they didn't know if they were going to make as much money off this thing as they thought they would. So they just stopped. And typically what happens is when you have something unusual, you go on what's called a clinical hold, which is the regulatory authority saying, let's just stop, take a beat, try to find out what's going on. Well, they stopped, took a beat, and left. They left it on the shelf. And unfortunately for people, for patients, the drug works really, really well. And when it was no longer available, some of the patients that had been on the clinical trials started dying. And because I knew the physicians who ran the phase one clinical trial, I knew some of the patients even, initially some of the physicians started calling me and saying, typically patients with this disease last two to three years. So two to three years after the drug was taken away, the phase three was stopped, the physicians started calling me. And I had another job and I was working on other diseases at the time. But that's very motivating. I had... Uh, Moshi Talpaz from University of Michigan, he'd enrolled, between the phase one and phase two, he enrolled 13 patients, and by the time he called me, 11 of them had died. Oh, man. Yeah. it was, it was It was horrible. It yeah. was horrible. And the real kicker was uh, at UCSD, uh, Katrina Jamison, who's one of my good friends, she had patients that I had met and knew, and they really needed the drug. And their ask to me was, hey, can you get this drug from Santa Fe just for what's called compassionate use? So it's not approved, yeah. but this patient won't make it without the drug. Can you try to get it for them? So I started working to, with Santa Fe, and to their credit, they were actually amenable to the idea, which is kind of insane for them because ultimately giving away a drug to a dying patient that you don't plan on developing has zero upside and tons of downside because those patients can still sue you if you, the drug does something and they didn't expect it. Mm-hmm. And if they get better, you're not planning to market. So there's no reason to do that other than to be nice. Boy, that's a tough spot though. Yeah, corporate-wise. <laughs> corporate-wise because that's It's hard, but at the end of the day, they recognize it's yeah. a human being. Right. It's someone who really needs a drug. And so we were working with them to do that. And there was a few patients here locally. And... Um, Towards the end, they'd agreed to do it. I had a call that was being planned for a Monday, uh, Paris time, and the patient in question, who had I'd actually talked to her significant other, passed away on the Sunday, so she didn't make it. And so uh, on Monday, I quit the job I had, and I started negotiating for rights to the, dr- the drug. And um, part of getting the rights, we put up from personal savings, we put up a quarter million dollars wow. uh, to get rights to it. That's a, that's a belief, a strong belief. That yeah, this it was conviction. It was, it was the right thing to do. We needed to. We yeah. had to. We had to get it out there. So we got rights to the drug, and we had to negotiate with multiple parties, the original targeting group that had a shareholder interest, Santa Fe, and then I had to find real money because I couldn't finance yeah. the development of this thing. And we spent about two months, two and a half months, and I think I talked to close to 40 different venture capital firms before someone would believe, hey, this – scientist in San Diego knows something that Santa Fe didn't. And we got fifteen million in from a Belgium VC called Medici and they funded the company. And I got the clinical hold lifted. It took from there it was about fourteen months. We got the clinical hold lifted. The FDA agreed that all the data was sufficient to file for approval. And based on that we sold the company and to Celgene. And subsequent to that, Celgene uh, was sold to BMS, but now the, the drug is approved in the United States, it's approved in Europe, and I'm meeting patients who are alive today because it works and the other drugs don't. So what when you look at cancer, because you're going to look at it way differently than we do, how do you dissect it? I mean, is it, are all, obviously all cancers are not alike, but have we really made progress, obviously with this particular drug, but in a whole, as a whole, have we made progress in the past years oh absolutely I mean there's a lot of tumors and we can we've made progress in a lot of different ways I think the biggest 
for my, in my mind, one of the biggest steps was in the late 1990s, actually. A guy named Brian Drucker, who's my personal hero, he was looking at a disease called chronic myeloid leukemia. It's an overproduction of white blood cells. Now, white blood cells are the cells that we typically use to fight infection. The er- ironic thing with chronic myeloid leukemia is the overproduction of them, they're immature, so they don't work. They're kind of like having a bunch of 13-year-olds around. They just don't do anything. And so the patients with chronic myeloid leukemia were typically dying within nine months of diagnosis from pneumonias because they had all these immune-fighting cells that wouldn't fight. And what Brian realized was that it's driven, once again, by a single mutation and a single kinase. In this case, it's called BCR-ABLE. And he developed a drug that went on to become Gleevec. And now those patients, as opposed to living nine months, they're living 35 years and dying of motorcycle accidents at 95 or whatever, you know, they, they're dying of other causes. They don't die of CML. Wow. Is, that, is that the thing that makes you <clears throat> the most proud as a, as a scientist, as a doctor, is when you can help someone just die because you did something stupid. Like, <laughs> oh, I fell off the house painting the chimney. He died. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. I kept him alive. Yeah. Yeah, if you can treat the underlying cause, I mean, bad things happen to all of us. Right. We're going to, you know... But if we can treat the disease and let you die of some natural cause or some random stupid act, well, that's great. <laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, honestly, the patient that's here that, uh, that, that took my drug for myelofibrosis, Sandra, she was originally diagnosed with myelofibrosis at 23 years of age. Wow. And she was looking to not make it past her mid-20s. Hmm. She got into the clinical trial. The drug worked really well. Uh, clinical hold happened. She went on to some other drugs. It wasn't working. And we started working to try to get compassionate use of the drug. When we finally got her the drug, she was getting blood transfusions every two weeks for red blood cells and platelets because her bone marrow was completely failing. She was not going to be able to transport oxygen. She wasn't going to clot. She was probably going to have an internal bleed and die within three months. And instead, she got on the drug. And six months later, she got married, went to Costa Rica on vacation, was ziplining. She's <laughs> super active. She mountain climbs now. She's fine. Nice. Wow. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's, and that's, that's what we dream, dream about. That's what we want to do. You know, it, it's, it's the ultimate, I made that. It's, yeah. it's really helping someone. Yeah. So where do you go from there? I mean, what's your next? How do you decide? How many different cancers are there? <laughs> do you know? Uh, no, I don't know. I'm going to go with a lot. I will round it off to a lot. So how do you prioritize, or maybe with what you're on to, there's only certain ones that respond. I don't know. I don't even know how to ask the question. How do you know which one to attack next? So cancers are caused by mutations, genetic mutations, and we all accumulate mutations all the time. And typically they're edited out. It's just like you're doing a paper, you misspell some stuff, you have some typos. They have proteins like... It's one protein, for example, is called P53, and it just goes through and says, hey, you made a mistake, and it cleans up the DNA. But if you make a mistake, maybe P53 is the one that has the knockout, and then you have another mutation, and you get the accumulate the wrong set of mutations, you get cancer. Essentially, all cancer is is a cell that's got a constant green light. It's go, go, go. So it divides, splits. Every 20 hours, one cell becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, suddenly you have a tumor. Normally, that's regulated. Normal cells don't do that. They'll, one cell becomes two, and they say, all right, we're cool. we got enough cells. We stop. Mm-hmm. All that, the stop signals are gone with cancer. And typically, there are specific proteins that have mutations that are pushing the gas, that are telling it to go. And what we're doing now, this is the last five years have been truly amazing in terms of cancer treatment. Now there's diagnostic companies, uh, Foundation One, Keras, Garnet, others that screen tumors or even with a blood draw on a cancer patient to try to identify what those mutations are. And typically they'll have, you know, five or 600 different potential mutations. That's great. We only have drugs probably for 20 of those. So I'm working on getting drugs for some of the others. Okay, so wait. So they screen you to see what kind of mutation, cancer mutation you have. And that's the way that you want to address in treating the cancer. That's exactly right. So is this a different approach than it was 20 years ago? Oh, God, yeah. 
Got, yeah, so typically I brought up the story of CML with Brian Drucker. That was an anomaly because that cancer, chronic myeloid leukemia, is always driven by mutations in BCR able. That's not true for lung cancer. It's not true for colorectal. You could have colorectal carcinoma or, or lung cancer, and maybe it's driven by EGF mutations, and maybe it's RAS. There's different things within it. So what we're doing, and this is actually a new way to look at it. It's only over the last three or four years. I don't care where your cancer comes from. I just okay. care what the mutation is. So oh. the trial I'm doing right now, for example, we're looking at mutations in a specific protein. It's called PTCH or PATCH. Uh, it's pre- mutations in that are oncogenic. They drive cancer. And it's present in 2 to 3% of all cancer patients, or around forty to 50,000 patients in the United States every year. Okay. Individually, it's like 8% of colorectal carcinoma, 5% endometrial cancer. Once again, when those patients enroll, I do not care whatsoever what tissue type of cancer they have. I only care that they have this mutation because that's what my drug stops. Oh, wow. I have to digest that for a second because that's a whole new concept, right? Yeah. Are are there other scientists on board with you? Yeah, uh, there's a couple companies that have formed just in the last three or four years. Loxo was a really big company that did this with a uh, mutations in a protein called TRK, TREK. And that's present in about 1.25% of all cancers. And they sold their, their company off to Lilly, and now Lilly's got that drug on the market. Five years ago, nobody did this. Okay. But this is the direction we're going. We're looking at the cause of the cancer, yeah. not where it comes from. Is this, I feel like when you are in this industry, like anything, a person's in something, they become frustrated with being in it and other people not recognizing, hey, here's the problem. This is what we need to do to fix it and not having this wave of people come along. What, what is that like when you, when you know, I'm not looking for the tissue version of this cancer. I'm looking for the mutation version. And you're trying to get people to understand this is how we start curing these things. Yeah, it, it's, it's completely true. Because in a lot of times, to your point, the physicians recognize it. And we're trying to do things to educate patients. To go to your original point, Kim, patients are the ultimate advocate. Maybe you meet with your doctor 15, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, but it's your tumor. You're living yeah. with it 24-7. Yeah. You have to be your own advocate and find ways. A lot of times a problem becomes just almost the regulatory and bureaucratic structure. Because ultimately, I say I don't care, for example, with this one, what type of cancer it is. But if it's colorectal carcinoma, I have to take patients who failed 10 lines of therapy. If it's just upstream and it's gastric in the stomach, turns out they only have two lines of therapy. And it winds up making a big difference in the patient because for colorectal carcinoma, those eight lines of therapy, radiation, multiple types of chemo, surgery, they're really hard on the patient. And ultimately, because my drug is treating the cause of the disease, the smart place to go would be right up front. Right. But there's no way to do that. None. You always have to, I mean, well, there is, but it'll take 15 years because you have to <laughs> prove that it works on the patients who have nothing. Then you do a step forward and do a combination. Then you take off whatever you can buy. It's just a bureaucratic nightmare. Is that is that a, an American thing or is that a or, or is that like a, a global community thing? Because there's I feel like a lot of times where I follow sports a lot. Yeah. And a lot of these guys who have debilitating injuries have to go to another country in the offseason to get the treatment and then come back. And now you're like, well, I went over here, got this fixed. Now I'm back. So why couldn't you do that here? They don't allow it. <laughs> yeah, it's there are some countries that are a little bit easier. But for the most part, the whether it's the European authorities, the EMA, or the FDA, you still go through this incredibly rigorous, even if it's obvious this is what you're supposed to be doing, it's obvious, but you got to prove it. And every right. time, every proof requires clinical trials in three or four years. Exactly. It takes forever. So if you're just like a regular schmoo like me, how are you how do you know what trials are out? I mean, how do you know that there's another treatment out there that could really help you if it's not what's being in, given to you your options in the mainstream arena of medicine? Yeah, it's really hard. Um the first thing to do if you're a, just a normal person, I'm hoping you're somewhere that they do genomic sequencing. It's gotten a lot easier. You can just do it with a blood draw now. They don't have to take a piece of the tumor. 
Because when tumors grow and divide, some of them literally just rupture along the way. Okay. So there's enough DNA floating around in your blood. You can do a blood draw, and they look for those specific mutations in any DNA that happens to be in two mils of your blood. That's literally all you do. And once you identify the mutation, you should first go to your physician and say, hey, I've got a mutation in RET, TREC, ABLE, EGFR, whatever. Is there an appropriate therapy? And hopefully they will do something, and if not, you might need a different physician. Uh, there are sites that you can look on. Uh, there's one maintained by the U.S. government, clinicaltrials.gov. Okay. But it's it's not necessarily the most intuitive, but you can put your mutation in and look for clinical trials. It's not as easy as it should be. And ultimately, a lot of it does become being identifying what's causing your cancer by looking at that mutational background and then going to the physicians and saying, I need help with this. So the first step is to get your sequencing done. Yes. That's the first step. That used to be such a strange concept, but it's not so much anymore. The first company to start sequencing was a company called Foundation One, and they were launched in, I believe, 2014, 2015. So last seven years. That's that's it. It's yeah. but and even then that was like a startup company yeah. that had virtually nothing. They really weren't robust probably until 2018. So this is as, this is as new as it gets. But it's really changed the way we treat. And and I know physicians that some of my favorite physicians at UCSD here in town, Becky Shotsky and others, even if there's not a targeted therapy, they collate information that says, "Okay, you're a breast cancer patient. Maybe you're triple negative, so none of the standard therapies work. But with your mutational background, I know this regimen using platinum chemotherapy works better or whatever it may be. Okay. So they, they actually can draw a fingerprint of the genetic causes of your cancer and find whatever data they can to direct you to the best possible treatment. And even though there is a bureaucracy around the treatment regimen, oncologists still have, or any physician in a life-threatening disease has, tends to have a lot of flexibility on what they believe the best treatment for their patient is. And they should be able to get it reimbursed through insurance. Oh, my God. So when the goal is to always save the life, the goal is to always to help the patient. Correct. When you find yourself in a situation where, like you said, they have to go through these different steps before they even get to me, and I know what I do works. So you got to blast your body. You can do all these things that are really tough on your body. And now you know what you have works. How do you get it to the front? Like you said, it's a it's a patience process. Like you have to be patient. You got to wait years upon years upon years. But you also said that there are physicians who have a lot of leeway where they can say, okay, well, I know that this works. Let's move you to this. Yeah. How do you, you the individual, find more physicians to tell them, hey, if your patient has X, Y, Z, this is what I have that can help them? One of the things that tends to help is if you go to big academic centers like uh, Dana-Farber, MD Anderson, UCSD, those physicians tend to run more clinical trials, and they're just exposed to more cutting-edge therapies, and they're more willing to move it up. Okay. It's harder to do in tertiary centers, you know, just random places out in Riverside or whatever, because right. they just don't run the trials. They don't see it. It's nothing against the doctors there. They may be good, but when I'm running a trial, I don't necessarily go to them. Okay. So they're, they're not as, as exposed. So if you can get to a major medical center, that helps a lot. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cliche. MD Anderson is one of the best in the world. UCSD has become one of the best in the world as well. But 15 years ago, they did publish studies. A, an oncology patient who got treated at MD Anderson lived longer and felt better than someone who got treated anywhere else. The same thing can be said now for UCSD, Sloan Kettering, those others. And once again, it's not that the people out in a rural place aren't great docs. They just aren't exposed to the same level of information. Gotcha. And it makes a difference. If you're in the trials and you're exposed to all of that and you're thinking about it all the time, you're not just going, okay, you're a colorectal carcinoma patient. We do Folfox, which is three different chemos all at once, and buckle up. Ooh. What is the next is, okay, so the whole mutation is a whole different concept, and I get it. So it's it's a different way of treating it. Is there, is this the cure? It can't, well, we always, 
the cure is like a word that a scientist is always reluctant to say. But I mean, I consider CML for 99% of CML patients. I know there's some that don't respond to it, but they're cured. Yeah. If you live 30 years and you don't die of cancer, you're cured. That's cured to me. It's not like you're cured to me. <laughs> Amen. Amen. That's it. And that's being seen. And the other thing that's really revolutionary right now beyond precision medicine is immuno-oncology. You know, this started with uh, Jim Allison, actually. He's got a great background story, small town Texas, and no one really believed it would work. And he's found ways to allow the immune system to actually attack cancer. And for a subset of patients, I think it's around 12% of non-small cell lung cancer, it's cured. The tumor goes away. Because one of the things, it's the same mutational story, essentially. One of the things that cancers do is they have mutations or pathways that are turned on to hide themselves from the immune system. Okay. And he identified a few of the things that allow them to hide. He blocks them. Suddenly the immune system sees them and it clears goes them. after them. It goes after them. What, what cancer is, is so challenging though right now? Like are, are there many cancers that are just the ones that are just tough to get at? Well, I think the worst is pancreatic and that's just the problem with pancreatic cancer is that it's asymptomatic yeah. for most of the time. You don't know you have it while it's just in the pancreas. You, I don't think there's probably any nerve endings in the pancreas. Uh, we can still manage to eat food, even though we don't have normal bile production from the pancreas. So it's just there growing and growing. It even is hard to image if you're trying to image it with an ultrasound or anything outside. So it's really hard to know it's there until it's too late. Okay. And that's the single biggest problem with pancreatic is it's um, the car so that's has already it. crashed. It's been there. That's the, the issue. It's not the difficulty of the cancer. It's the fact that it's just been given free reign for so long. Yeah. Okay. So it could be 6, 12, 24 months of pancreatic cancer growth before you even know you have it. I, a girl that I went to college with has it. Went to MD Anderson, had the Whipple. Yeah. She's seven years out. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, you can't, she was, she was fortunate with probably the, uh, where the pancreatic cancer was located. It hadn't broadly disseminated. It hadn't broadly spread and she went to the right place. Yeah. Yeah. But I think right now the uh, typical prognosis is about five months survival and that's, um, the overall survival after five years is below 5%. After five years or 95% of the patients are, don't make it five years. Oh my God! So, so she's, you're, so she's, she's doing great. She, in my mind, typically five years, a lot of times, will be considered uh, cured. To go back to your earlier question, mm-hmm. do you feel like you reach enough people? Do you feel like your work reaches enough people? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's it, it, my my industry is weird. There's like three different industries within one. I'm going to get to answer your question. Don't worry. Uh, the, the the first part is kind of the science and discovery, the research and development, just finding the drug. Okay. That's industry one. And it takes a ton of money, a ton of time. And you, you're kind of, you're, you're playing blackjack. You just don't know if it's going to work out. Then you get into clinical development, which also takes a lot of time. But then you actually start seeing this thing actually can work in man. And then you hand it over to the commercial side, which I've never done. And that's where your question really hits is can and this is largely big pharma can they get out and adequately inform and market to the consumers and i don't think they do a good job i really don't i think it's challenging the the rules of the road are such that it becomes very very difficult to really say what needs to be said a lot of times so they give these really crazy ads which i don't even think should ever be on television with People dancing in a field. Oh, I never. I hate those things, man. It's the worst. And then they had the long list of potential side effects. And knowing clinical trials, I actually realized that they're having to list everything that happened, which may or may not have anything to do with the drug. Right. So that the whole side effects, and that always freaks everyone out. It may not have anything to do with the drug. Yeah. What would it have to do with? Just timing. Okay, so. You enroll. Like whenever I hear anal leakage on any, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, out. that's a, that's a hard pass. That's I agree. A, that's with a no for me. And by the way, that did have a lot to do with the drug. <laughs> <laughs> that was not good. Yeah, so that drug actually tried to block fat, but fat has to go somewhere, so it 
became anal leakage. Oh my God. Um, so anyway, yeah. So if you run a clinical trial, you wind up doing low percentage events and say you're enrolling two groups, a placebo and a group you're treating. And depending on where they enroll, just random chance, maybe the people that enrolled in San Diego happen to do it during Santa Ana's. So suddenly you're got, yeah, you can have runny noses and headaches. Oh, That's no. just because of stupid no. Santa Ana's. No way. It's nothing to do with the drug. Now you're hoping that if you enroll enough patients, it'll equalize between placebo and treat. But you don't know. It, you don't know. You don't know. I, I know like for the drug I developed, they had uh, one of the things we looked at was there was there was some really quantitative measurements. Does your spleen shrink? Do your blood cell counts get normal? All those hit. And then there was uh, some measurements on how the patient felt. And most of the patients performed well, and we had, a, we had an improvement, but I noticed that it wasn't as much as I would expect given the quantitative. And you just start going through on the granular level of data. It's like, how do you feel today? Are you sad? Are you depressed? You've, there was a handful of patients who just had really bad things happen because these are mostly over 60 years old. They had one of, the, one of them came in, and he felt pretty good. He was scoring on a scale of 0 to 10, nines at the beginning of the study. Two months in, his wife died, and they had been married for 40 years. So we went from nines oh. to zero. Did that have anything to do with the drug? No. Yeah. Sad. But they had to include but that. Of course. Oh, and, my And gosh. that really drags the whole scoring system. And it was we had a handful of bad events happen on the drug side that literally had nothing whatsoever. It was things like that. There was yeah. a car crash, wife died, blah, blah, blah. So that looks like doesn't work that great. Okay, that's super misleading. Yeah. Because we've been fed that shit now for how many years that they started running all these ads? The ads are, they, they just need to ban the ads. That's the only thing I listen for is the ends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't care about the tire. I don't care about the swing, the tub. I don't care about none of that. Get to the end. Let's get that part y'all say real, real fast. I'm listening for anal anything. Bleeding anything. I'm out. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I those ads are just horrid. They have to fit FDA guidelines. You reveal everything, but you also can't overpromise. And the overpromise, they, they wind up getting to an area where we can't tell you anything, but at the end, we're going to scare the crap out of you. Oy. And it's they just, and they do. It, they do. So I just get rid of them. But you'll smile at breakfast with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just get rid of those things. You'll throw a football with your son. Which, to go to your question, I think we have to find a way to actually inform patients as opposed to whatever those commercials are supposed to be doing because they certainly don't inform mm. i don't know what they're for so say if you have um if you have a cancer first you have to find a way to get genomic sequencing if you have egr that egfr mutations that's known to drive five to six percent of patients you should consider this type of treatment go to your doctor Something simple, just facts. People yeah. are dumb. Just no. give them a chance. Yeah, they are. I, I, I listen. Look, <laughs> Some of them are. Some yeah. of them are. No, no. Listen, listen, <laughs> listen. You just hit a sweet spot with me. Okay, <laughs> people are dumb. They just are. They just are. And so the the less you complicate things, the easier yeah. it is for people. Because we we are relying. I think a lot of people in professional worlds they don't realize how people, how everyday people, are tangled up in their own complicated lives. They don't even have the time to take care of most of their stuff during the day. So now they need to pay attention to this thing. They, they're not dumb because they're stupid. They're dumb because they don't have the time to pay attention. And those are two completely different things. Because I don't think Americans are stupid. I think they don't have time to pay attention. And so their ignorance just comes from lack of time because they've got two jobs. They've got kids. They've got bills. They've, their car broke down. Their student loans is getting red. Like, there's so many different things that doesn't allow them to absorb some of that information that they need to, even if it is for their own health. But I, I violently also, agree with that, actually. Yeah, I do, too. And the thing that, from my own experiences, the days of just handing your stuff to a doctor and saying, figure it out, are over. Yeah. You have to advocate for yourself. And I agree with you. That's spot on, because it's a full-time job to try to figure out what's wrong. Yes. Yeah, it, there was uh, Richard Feynman, famous physicist. He always said, if you truly understand something, you should be able to teach it to a fifth grader in an elevator ride. That's hmm. what those commercials need to be doing. Yeah, Keep it simple because people don't have time. They don't have the bandwidth. And if you can't have cancer, for example, you're freaked out. Yes, yeah. immediately. Make it super simple. Make it basic. Make it so you people can understand. 
And, and I think that's one of the things where people are afraid to say people are stupid because they don't want to offend people. But when you explain to them why that why that exists, then people kind of go, well, yeah, that's true. I don't have time for that. Yeah. Like, And, and then you hear cancer and people immediately want to hug you. They want to start a GoFundMe. <laughs> it's like, no, relax, relax. I've educated myself. I've spoken to my doctor. Like, that's how all those commercials should end. Yeah. Go speak to your doctor. <laughs> be a guy in a white coat. Come talk to me. Don't and listen then, to Uncle Bill. Right, right. Uncle Bill's going to mislead right. you. They're going to kill you. <laughs> no, it is it's it is very misleading. But we have to figure out a way that we are figuring stuff out ourselves. And let me tell you, listening to podcasts, that's how I got educated. It seriously is yes. about my condition and different solutions for it. I mean, you have to go to wherever sources are. And, you know, I, I don't know. I can't trust. I couldn't trust my doctors. I was misdiagnosed with so many different illnesses from Lyme's disease to Bartonella <laughs> to um, um, aplastic anemia oh, Lord. to all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, everything. I was 24 hours away from getting a phlebotomy. I don't have any of that stuff. So I mean, you we yeah. have to keep educating ourselves. But you're right; it's it's a full time job, and it's actually a disservice because you are giving hope because you sound very excited. You really do, genuinely. And some of the stuff I read about you, I mean, it should be every scientist. Um, the end result is you want to save lives, but there's just there is something in the way that you said things that is like so exuberant that <laughs> you want to save that is it you are out there you, like you said you're not going to be fiddling around with mice you want to make a difference and it sounds like you're on to something big i hope so i hope so i mean I, I do think at the end of the day it becomes about people and in this case like with the last company i knew the patients that were going to die if i didn't do it if that doesn't motivate you, you're, you're truly in the wrong business. You're yeah. probably in the wrong species. You but have to be motivated about the humans. You also have to have compassion, too. You yeah. can't lose sight of that along the way in your quest. Right. Right, right. It's not an academic question when you know that young lady's going to die if I don't get my crap together. Yeah. Find a way. Just make it happen. You're so, like, you're clearly, your brain's a busy piece of equipment. Like, <laughs> how do you relax? Like, what do you do to kind of, like... Because what you do, that's like a 24-hour thinking of helping and helping. And you could be drinking coffee or making eggs or <laughs> lifting weights. And, and then something hits you and you go, oh, oh wait, I got to go. Like, how do you relax your mind? How do you, like, be just a regular person? <laughs> uh, well, I think you and I could talk sports a lot. I'm a, I'm a big fan of sports. <laughs> nice, nice. Huge fan of sports. And uh, until, like you said, three days ago, I was a big fan of lifting weights. <laughs> Popped a bicep. Uh, pectoral muscle. Oh, pectoral. I, I ripped the pec off my arm. <laughs> it's so unfortunate. It's so gross and, I've never and absurd. I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Um, so now I, I, I'm going to be talking about sports instead of participating for the next six to 12 months, which may be a grind, but I'll find ways. Nice. You should. But you can shut it down. Yeah, you can I, I shut absolutely it down. can. Yeah, 100%. Well, I still... You have an epiphany. You have an epiphany. Yeah. You got to deal with it. You're like, I know how to do this now. Yeah. And I've got a, I've got a real, my company, I, we actually try to stay small and it's all people that are, most of the people I've worked with. So they're all friends of John. They, they actually joke about the fact that literally every employee is an FOJ. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. And, uh, but, but isn't it better that way? A hundred percent. I know these guys. Yes. Keep it small. Keep it with people who you know. Have the same intentions. With. Yeah. Because your business seems like there could be some sharks out there. <laughs> oh, my God. There's some grifters. It's bad. Really? Oh, it's, there's there's some people. They're not necessarily grifting patients other than the fact there are people that are enrolling in trials they probably shouldn't have. But they're grifting investors who otherwise could be investing in really good companies. Oh. Mm. Which is unfortunate. But yeah. it's true. It's true with anything. We actually, I, I make fun of them and have referred to some of them as grift therapeutics and stuff. They've got a whole <laughs> group of companies. Hey, that's grift therapeutics. So you again. know. It's not like oh, you know. You, you know. read the title and they're like, oh, we're going to use machine learning and quantum computers. I'm like, there's no such thing as a quantum computer. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? You really sold that to someone? See, we wouldn't have known anything. That's cool. You must want to throw in photon torpedoes. That's and, like <laughs> Jetsons and Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. We got that kind of technology now? 
I do blockchain <laughs> drug discovery with crypto. No, it's just crap. Yeah, man. I need to get some investors with that. <laughs> <laughs> investors with that. Yeah. So, but I got, the guys we're with are really focused on their gig, and just like you're saying, I've, so one of these guys, I've actually we're joking. I hired him in twenty or two thousand two. So I have a 20-year relationship with someone who's worked with me with four or five companies. Most marriages don't last that long. Yeah. And That's I've been huge. working with this quirky guy that just does formulating drugs, figuring out ways to put them in a capsule, put them in a tablet, deliver them. But he gets you then. He gets your language. Oh, he's so easy. By the time I realize the question I should ask him, he's already run the study and can just give me the answer. That's awesome. And but so that's priceless, though. When you perfect, when you so efficient. When you're working in an industry that requires so much waiting, sometimes when you you've waited and now the time comes, and you just got to be ready to, to to ride the lightning when the time comes, and to have people in your office or within your your, your work environment where you guys are on a chain, you're thinking kind of in the same wavelength. I think that can that that's that's invaluable. Amen. Amen. So we've got we're 15 people. And nice. we do everything. Run. We've got two phase two trials going. Another drug we're developing to put into clinic. Looking at one another with phase one, and I can't imagine it's getting to twenty. Comparable companies are riding around with like a hundred, hundred fifty people, but they're not my people. Oy. So, <laughs> so what are you work? Are you you're working on something now? Yeah, is well, it I've got a the, whole different. I've got multiple. Um, the drug I mentioned is going after a mutation and patch. Okay, that, that clinical trial. We're having um, our first clinical trial site will be MD Anderson, which should open up next week. And then one week after that, it'll be UCSD. And um, we already have a bunch of patients identified. We're just waiting to get through the bureaucracy, opening the sites, agreeing on budgets, agreeing on contracts, all that same nonsense you have to do with anything. So how, I mean, do you get close to these patients? Do you, how do you, how does this work with you? I'm not supposed to. I'm I'm supposed to be blinded, but it always happens. Yeah. I know all the physicians. One of the, and I, I don't know if I should be dropping names like this, already brought up Becky Shotsky, who, if you're asking before, how do you know? If you have breast cancer in, in San Diego, go see Becky Shotsky at UCSD. Yeah. She's best. She's yeah. amazing. There's another guy, Sandeep Patel at UCSD. He's incredible. I'm, I have no doubt I'll wind up learning about his patients because we ramen and convoy, and he'll tell me all about them. It's a collab, right? Yeah. I mean, you all have to work together. And if they've got you in their back pocket, the guy that's coming up with these drugs course yeah and he'll ask me it's like hey this patient is experiencing xyz is that what you would expect what should we do blah 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 we'll figure it out are you jumping outside of the cancer realm yeah i've got uh the same drug is weirdly enough is being used for a pulmonary disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis which is a mouthful when my kids were uh young the first medical term I taught them actually was idiopathic because I think it's a great fancy way to say, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Idiopathic. Yeah. Pathic is pathology. Idio is, I don't know. I don't know what caused it. So it's, you got something bad and we don't know why. So and that's something you need to know in a doctor's wow. office because when they say that, you'd be like, oh, man, that sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, really in, I'm, really, I'm in bad shape. I got the idiot. What? <laughs> My doctor doesn't know. Oh, oh man. man. <laughs> oh, I ain't going to make it. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, it's idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So it's a disease where patients are just constantly forming a scar in their lungs until the, fat, the point that they can't breathe. And survival for that is two to three years. And so the pathway we're working on, the one I mentioned before that's got the protein patch, it's called the hedgehog pathway. In a d- developmentally, if you're a fetus, it's super wicked important. If you're an adult, it only does a couple things. Wound healing, tissue remodeling, and oncogenesis drives tumors. So with oh, wow. IPF, that since that is a tissue remodeling disorder, we're hoping to inhibit it and reverse it and change these patients' lives. So these are guy, people shouldn't say guys because guys and girls. Mm-hmm. It's about two-thirds men. Yep. Um, and they've got some underlying disease in their past well before they come to the hospital. Either you know, maybe they worked in mines in West Virginia and held a bunch of stuff they shouldn't, asbestos, tons of respiratory infections. They tend to be smokers. And it's just a chronic wounding reflex. And even if you get post-inflammatory, so it's no longer inflammatory, it's just their lung is constantly remodeling and forming. So you can think of it, if you imagine a cut on your arm, the initial reaction is largely immune systems to make sure you clear out any bacteria or anything. And after that, it's remodeling. It's it's dropping the fibrotic matrix and closing the wound. 
they're stuck in that dropping the fibrotic matrix and closing the wound loop. It's just formed a cycle, and they can't break out of it, and it's slowly turning their whole lung into a piece of scar tissue. Hmm. So does this reverse it? Or it stops it we don't where know it yet. is. We don't know yet. So what happens, there's a specialized cell in the body called a myofibroblast. Myo's got muscle cell-like ca- characteristics, and a fibroblast just drops down matrix. That's what closes the wound when you cut your arm. Okay. And it isn't in your body except for that. That cell is only there because of this hedgehog pathway causes it to be there because it's not typically in your body. Okay. So by blocking it, what we're hoping to do is, at a minimum, prevent future scarring. And potentially reverse some of the scarring that's already occurred. But we won't know until we try. That's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. So once again, these patients, right now they're dying in two to three years. The hope is they die 30 years later, that motorcycle accident, or falling off the house, as you put it. There you go. This was the best science class I've ever been in. It's the first science class I've been in. But I actually paid attention. <laughs> you should be a teacher. <laughs> I'm glad I could beef there for you. Have you, have you, have you, what about doctoring? Have you ever thought about surgeries or anything like that? Because I feel like I would have confidence with you to stitch me up. I don't think I'd do great with patients. Okay, really? I like patients. I like people. So many patients, only 70% of cancer patients actually take their medicine oh. when they should. What? That doesn't would, make any I sense. Would, no. Well, part of it is, you know, they uh, cancer patients have brain fog. They're confused. They got stuff, and they just forget. And sometimes, you know, there's they don't, they just don't. I forget taking my statins sometimes, but it, their life is dependent upon yeah. it. Yeah. I think if I had a patient that frequently just didn't take their medicine, I'd headbutt them or do something. They get kicked, yeah. get kicked out of the profession. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. You'd nice. cross the line. I would definitely cross the line. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's okay. It's in their best interest. Yeah, so there there are people that can deal with personalities. Personalities better than me. Last question for me. You're a doctor. You understand things all the way down to the the micro level. Did the information that was surfacing about COVID really upset you? The misinformation about COVID really uh, upsets me. Yeah, I get really, really angry. I, I mean, we shouldn't be where we are. We, it should not have taken two and a half years. Honestly, you know, when, when it first came out, I'm friends with Monsef um, Salui, the guy that was in charge of Operation Warp Speed. Okay. And he's a great guy, honestly. He has personally developed, while he was at GlaxoSmithKline, I think it was 23 different vaccines that are approved and used. This man, by himself, has single-handedly saved tens if not hundreds of millions of lives worldwide with vaccines he created. Wow. Incredible. I mean, he literally has saved more lives than any human ever. And um, when it first hit, I thought, we're not, this is going to be a long ride. And I emailed him early on. He said, yeah, it's going to take a while. And then in, I think, February or March, he emailed, this could be solved a lot earlier than we think because he'd seen early cuts of the data with the mRNA vaccines. Ah. And they work. They work. They completely work. And even now, Omicron, I think, is the equivalent of the 1920 Spanish flu, which made the 1918 Spanish flu moot. It's, it's essentially vaccinated the dummies who wouldn't get vaccinated otherwise. Mm-hmm. But we all should have just gotten vaccinated. Mm. It would have made life so much easier. And there was all this misinformation that Bill Gates is putting a chip in. Bill Gates doesn't care if you go to 7-Eleven. <laughs> Just come on, man. Yeah. He as really a, doesn't. No. Yeah, as a smart person, <laughs> as a smart person who understands this, when someone said there's a chip in it, how, what did you punch? Because when I, I'm not a scientist. No surprise to anyone, newsflash. When someone said, I had a cousin, I'm not going to lie. My family's not that smart. I had a cousin go, man, there's a chip in there. I said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> shut up. Just shut up. Just shut up. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. Don't talk to my mom. Don't talk to my nephew. Don't talk to my son. If I hear you say this, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight you. Like, who's following you? You're carrying a cell phone. They already follow you. Exactly. They follow you. Yeah, I had a nephew do the same thing, and I was like, oh. John. You're literally going to prison in a week. Everyone knows right. where the hell you're going to be. It's <laughs> easy to find. They know what cell you're in. Oh. It's okay. They don't want to do that. The 
chip thing just oh, no, I couldn't take it. It couldn't have been more uh, far fetched. So between that and the magnetism and all the other oh, and the the, the spoon thing was really, good too. Oh my god, the what thing? This lady had a <laughs> this this woman at a um a, a town hall said it makes you magnetic. But this woman put a spoon on her body. And it fell off every <laughs> time. I was like, there you go. That's not real. <laughs> that proves that that one's a lie. Stop saying that one. Yeah. Stop talking. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, there are people that actually made a ton of money by spreading yes. these lies. And I think that should be illegal. Yes. Yes. There I was, agree. There, there was, what is it? They, they, they identified the six people who started something like 70% of the misinformation on, so, on social Facebook. media. And there was one of the guys is a doctor his entire business is online selling supplements to help you fight COVID because the vaccines don't work according to him. Oh my God. Unbelievable. Wow. I mean, I mean, how is that legal? I don't know. I don't know. But here I can't even tell patients stuff works that I know actually does work. But this guy, but this guy just makes up random crap and uh, makes a ton of money. Uh, well, that was been the past three years though. Yeah. A lot of made up stuff. That's exactly right. And here we are. Hopefully we're on the downside. Things oh, I, are looking better, right? Oh, they're looking so much better. Omicron, it really is. Most viruses, not all, but most viruses get far less um, infectious, not less infectious, they get less deadly, less severe over time. Because the, the virus that predominates, that dominates, is the one that transmisses the most. Okay. To be transmissible, you have to A, be easy to spread, and okay. B, the person who has it has to get out of their bed and go walk around. So they have to be relatively healthy. Okay. So Omicron fits that. It's easy to spread, and you don't get that sick. Okay. And it's, it should keep getting easier. So and it's not going to roll into another one? There'll probably be secondary think? mutations, but the ones that spread are being the ones that people can actually tolerate. Okay. So, but, but you think we're going to have to get boosted every year? I don't know. I don't know. That's, that, that, I have no idea, really. I, we might not. That would be nice. It would be great. But if it's just another... Part of the flu vaccine, that's fine. And the flu vaccine should get better because if you can use mRNA technology, the lead time goes down. The problem with flu vaccines right now is they're based on the flu that was uh, prevalent in China one year ago. Okay. Because it takes that long to yeah. grow them up in eggs and distribute them. With mRNA vaccines, you should be able to shrink that down to six months. So that's why the flu vaccine right now is only maybe 40, 60% effective because in that one year the flu is mutated. But if you can shrink it down to six six months or four months, there's not as many mutations. Suddenly, it's going to go up to 70, 90% effective. That's my hope. So I got a lot of takeaway from this entire conversation. I did too, man. I know. I, I, I really did. And it's, it's the hope that you give people, which is honestly, that's yeah. what makes it so unbelievable because your voice has to be out there. I mean, if but I heard it at a little tiny dinner party. I feel like he's got to be on a podium somewhere screaming the information that he has and the hope that he can give people. Time for you to start having bigger dinners, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I like that idea. <laughs> thanks for coming, John Hood. Honestly, it's been a great conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. This is fun. <laughs>